Are we on? Yeah, we are. All right, good. Uh, today we're going to be talking about loving your neighbor and what that looks like as it relates to the Ten Commandments and the law. Um, but before we get into that, something I want to just kind of promote and advocate for a little bit. Um, you may know that our church was instrumental in founding the Crossword Cafe uh, down, uh, down, in, uh, down on 2nd Street. And through the cafe, there is an opportunity to participate in loving your neighbor with the gospel. Uh, they have had almost 250 different kids since December through the, cro- through the doors of the Crossword Cafe. And many of them do not know Jesus. And they, um, they need some additional help to be able to build relationships with that large number of students and, uh, and ultimately to share the gospel with those students. So if that sounds like something that you would be interested in, or even if it doesn't, uh, but you don't have anybody else that you are sharing the gospel with, I would encourage you to talk to John and Chris Heffron or talk to Rachel uh, B.C., uh, about the opportunities that are there, because there are some opportunities to work with junior high students, some opportunities to work with senior high students, uh, some opportunities to work with some newly uh, graduated uh, young adults uh, that really need both direction and Jesus. And so uh, if that'd be something you would uh, would think, you know, I don't really have a lot of uh, non-Christian relationships, and so it's going to be hard for me to, to really share the gospel with people. Uh, as we're tr- trying to do as a church, you know, we're trying to reach 2,018 people uh, with the gospel by the year 2018. Uh, we're about 263 as of today uh, on this year, uh, and uh, we we would like to reach about 400 this year, about 400 next year, about 400 every year after that uh, with the with the gospel message. And uh, so we're on our way, but. We're going to need everybody, all hands on deck, as the expression goes, in order to make that happen. And uh, this is one of the ways that you could participate in making that happen. Uh, I want to pray for us uh, here before we get started into the scriptures also that, um, you know, the great temptation uh, of, of us as Christians many times is to simply listen to the word and affirm that it is true and confuse uh, hearing and obedience. Amen? Brother James tells us, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Amen? And today is uh, a day when we're going to talk very practically about what it means to love your neighbor according to the scriptures. And we need to not just hear what it says, we need to do it. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would not be like a man who looks in a mirror and sees what he looks like and then goes away and forgets. Father, we pray that we would look deeply into your word and examine ourselves in light of it, and then by the power of your Holy Spirit make adjustment that we might live in a holy way. Father, for many of us, Uh, The hole in our holiness is that we do not care very much about being holy. And Father, we pray that we would be indeed your holy people. 
and that we would lift you up and exalt you in every way, including with our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking today at the second half, the second table of the law. The part, that, you know, the first four commandments of the old, of the Ten Commandments have to do with your relationship with God, and so thus we are told, uh, "You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God, in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day." These things are told uh, to the nation of Israel as part of their relationship with God, and we've spent two weeks on those. We're just going to spend a week on the, on the other six and what they have to do with loving your neighbor. And the law is structured so that if you're obeying the first table, if you're, if you're in a correct relationship with God, then you will naturally be in obedience to the second table. Uh, because the clear testimony of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is this, that you cannot do one without doing the other. The Apostle John wrote this way in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's a true story. If we, do not, if we are not rightly related to our neighbor, we also are not rightly related to God. And if we are not rightly related to God, we will not rightly be related to our neighbor. Uh, the two follow one another. And I think it's important, therefore, to see God's standards for how we treat one another with love in all of their fullness. You know, as you go through these commands, they seem pretty basic. You can write them a lot of places, you know, in school uh, they used to be on schoolroom walls, still on courthouses and town squares and so forth. Uh, but they're a lot deeper and broader and higher than they first appear. Uh, as I've tried to emphasize, there's both an internal and an external level of obedience <coughs> Excuse me, expected. They refer in their breadth to a whole category of sins that are related, uh, not, just, not just the one that's listed. The one that's listed is the most significant one in that category, but there's a whole list of others that are included as well. Uh, we get that from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount when he makes it clear that there's more involved in obeying the law than simply avoiding murdering somebody, for example, or avoiding committing adultery. There's a whole category uh, that's broader and deeper and higher than that, than simply that. Uh, and there's also uh, a clarification in the rest of the scriptures where these are expanded on and explained. And there's also a positive duty which is expected in addition to a prohibition you're supposed to obey. So in other words, it's not just a list of things where God says, do this and don't do that. There's also an expectation that where the commands are stated in the negative, that there's a positive duty that goes along with that. In other words, it's not just what I avoid, it's also what I do on the, on the flip side. And where they're stated in the positive, as with the command to honor your father and mother, there's also a whole list of things to avoid that go along with that. Understand? Hope so. We're going to get into this and explain it, and... And 
what we want to do, and the reason I've stated them all in the positive is because sometimes I think it comes across a little bit um, like all we're trying to emphasize is what we're not supposed to do. Um, but there's more to it than that. There's also a positive side of this that, that God intends for us to see. So the first one has to do with being respectful. Uh, so if you've got your Bible open, here, look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, beginning of verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this is a command that every child in every Christian home ought to know by heart. Every child ought to know this. Uh, because it is foundational to a healthy relationship and foundational to a loving home. Where children do not honor their parents, chaos results. Don't believe me? Read the newspaper. You will see what results in a society where children do not honor their parents. Look at the, look at the murder toll thus far in Chicago, which is in some ways directly attributable to a society where children do not honor their parents and do not listen. Why? Uh, because what you have to understand is that, is that it's about more than just obeying mom and dad when you're a little kid. It's about learning to respect authority and submit to instruction and, and that the whole culture is based on the fact that everybody has to submit to and obey the law even when they don't agree to it. That everybody in society lives in submission to somebody else, whether it is to the legislature or to the police officer or to the president or to a federal judge or to whatever. There's no one who does not, who escapes from living under authority. And children have to be taught that so that they don't become uh, absolute um, wild and crazy barbarians as they grow up. You know, somebody said every society is 20 years away from barbarism because that's how long it takes the next generation to grow up, right? And if children are not taught to honor their parents, barbarism is what does result. And that's what we see. Uh, Proverbs says it this way, the eye that scorns its father and mocks its mother will be plucked out by the birds of the air. I know Stacy Allison, one of our missionaries, has that verse on her refrigerator for all her children to see. All right, which I think is funny. Uh, it's not a pleasant mental image, but the reality of it is, is that the proverb writer is making the same point that God is making here in the law, that to honor mom and dad when you are a child sets you up for success later in life. To dishonor them when you were a child is to set you up for destruction and difficulty and pain and misery later on. Children who are not disciplined and taught to honor their mom and dad when they are young make harshly, terribly destructive choices when they are old. And one of the things that I try to teach my kids when they when we have one of those moments of disobedience and we don't have them real often with with uh, our children but we do have them they're normal and 
you know, I hear things like, it's not fair, or I don't want to, or whatever, what I try to teach him is, look, everywhere in life, you're going to have to learn to submit to what you regard as unjust authority over you. And we are teaching you right now to live under this benevolent dictatorship so that, and it is benevolent, we do love them, but so that when you get older and you have a boss or you have a spouse or you have a a police officer or you have a governor or you have a president or you have a legislature or whatever that you have to obey whether you want to or not, that you will be able to do so. Because if you don't, what happens is this, is that you set yourself up for kicking against the goads and wounding yourself and hurting them not at all, but damaging and destroying your your own life a great deal. And so this is foundational, this is important, and it isn't just for kids, by the way. You don't have to obey your parents after you get to adulthood, but you do have to honor them. And it's a command that applies regardless of who your parents are. And I know that is deeply painful in some circumstances. I remember watching my dad try to honor his mom and dad when he he was an adult man. Now, you have to understand, my grandfather was not a godly man. He was an abusive, philandering drunk for his entire adult life. He beat my dad within an inch of his life every day that he was home. He was a fireman. He was on for a few days and then off for a few and home. He beat my dad just bald-headed when he was a kid. And my grandmother was no great shakes either. Uh, At one point during a fight between uh, she and my grandfather, she held a gun to my dad's head and threatened to kill him. It was, a, it was a tragic home. Now, later on, my grandfather did become a Christian very late in life. And my grandmother also became a Christian late in life. But they were still, in some ways, not terribly nice people. And it was difficult to honor your father and your mother. In those, in, with that as a relational background. But I watched him do it. And God was honored. And if you have a, if you have a, a, a home life that was like that growing up, I'm very sorry. But the command is still the same. You've got to honor your father and your mother. Because there's a positive blessing that's attached to this that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving. A long life is often associated with honoring mom and dad. Why? Because you have learned to submit to authority and to follow direction and to give uh, respect to whom respect is due, not because of them, but because of God and the position he has put them in in relationship to you, okay? Let's move on. You shall not murder. A lot of people are influenced by the King James Bible on this. In fact, you still hear people 
say it this way. They'll say, well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. The Bible does not say that. Um, The Bible says you shall not murder. That's what the word actually means. Uh, Because the Bible elsewhere recognizes that there are legitimate circumstances for killing people. Now, they are rare and they are few, but there are exceptions. There is such a thing biblically as a just war, as an example. The other, another exception would be in self-defense. I'm talking legitimate self-defense, where someone is threatening you or a loved one, and you have to defend them or yourself. Lethal force is justified. Uh, there's, it's also biblically justified uh, as punishment for a capital crime. And there's a longer list in Scripture than what we currently recognize in the United States of America. But capital punishment is legitimate. But what's included in the command? Uh, If you look at the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that it's not just murder in specific. It's also hatred and verbal abuse. Remember, Jesus says, You've heard it said to the men of old, You shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a Hebrew word that means empty head, okay, moron, retard, you know, some some other pejorative label like that, will be liable to the judgment and the fires of hell. In other words, it's not just murder, it's also verbal abuse. It's also the hatred that verbal abuse grows out of that is included here. And since the Ten Ten Commandments are also clarified elsewhere in Scripture where we understand that the rest of the Scripture explains and, and expands on and clarifies the rest of this, you can also conclude that the Sixth Commandment prohibits not just murder but also hatred, verbal abuse, assault, rape, fistfights, threatening, abortion, unjust wars, gang membership, physical intimidation, and every other form of physical violence except for the few cases I mentioned above. Self-defense, just war, capital punishment. God wants people, his people, to be men and women of peace. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So we do not lash back at at people just because they treat us a certain way. We do not meet violence with violence. We do not meet hatred with hatred, verbal abuse with verbal abuse. To do that is to violate this commandment. Peter says it in a similar way. He says this, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 21 to 23, and chapter 3, verse 9, he says this. When, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's uh, 2, 21 to 23. Here's 3, 9. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. God's people are to be men and women of peace. They are not to meet evil with evil. And we become men and women of peace when we walk in the footsteps of the Savior, just as Peter called us to and says, Look, Jesus left you an example of how to respond. You ought to respond like him. Look at the seventh commandment now here. Be pure. Or, as the scripture says here, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, This is another one that Jesus addresses specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. His statement is is very much abused. So let me clarify it here. Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful Intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, on the basis of that statement, a lot of people from a former president, uh, Jimmy Carter, on down, have concluded that lust equals adultery. That's not specifically true. Uh, Or that one is just as bad as the other, or that God makes no distinctions between various types of sin. I've heard people say this. Well, you know, in God's eyes, all sin is the same. That is not specifically true, or at least not fully so. In in this respect, okay, it is true that all sin, whatever sin I am guilty of, requires the death of Christ to cover it. But not all sin is equal in terms of the harm that it does nor in the consequences that it receives from God. Amen? For example, would, would you rather have someone punch you in the face or shoot you in the head? Well, if I have to choose, one is infinitely preferable to the other, right? So it's not that all sin is equal, but that one is still sin and the other is also still sin. They are not equivalent, and they're not interchangeable. Or I've heard sometimes some women say, well, you know, my husband violated our marriage vows and committed adultery. Well, what did he do? Well, he was checking out some girl walking down the beach. Well, is that sin? Yes. Is it adultery? No. Is it lust? Yes. And lust is a form of violating this command. But they're not precisely the same. Okay, what's my point in all this? Okay, here's the thing. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying to people, look, he's, he's speaking to a bunch of legalistic people. And these folks thought that, well, as long as I don't climb into bed with anybody, then I, that's not my spouse, well, then I'm holy before God. But I can lust all I want and be fine. And Jesus says, No, you can't. No, you can't. And in fact, your righteousness, if if that's how it's defined, doesn't amount to very much. And they went, what? Are you kidding me? And he went, yes, that's exactly what the command means. That all forms of lustful sexual expression, whether mental or physical, are still sin, and still call you to account before God. 
all for. So, uh, as I've repeatedly said here at this point, uh, let me clarify again. The, the scripture here in the prohibition, in the command that's being given, refers to and prohibits a whole range of sin, not just adultery, but every other kind of lustful sexual desire as well. So, let me give you kind of a partial list, okay? If I forget any, uh, see me afterwards and I'll tell you, yeah, that's included too. All right? But it includes this. It includes adultery in every form. It includes premarital sexual contact in every form. It includes homosexuality, bestiality, incest, rape, Friends with benefits, self-stimulation, divorcing your spouse so you can pursue a relationship with somebody else, nudity on TV and in the movies, pornography, erotica, so-called romance novels, and every other lustful sexual expression somebody can dream up. Did I leave any out? Hope not. But if it, if it includes an element of lust... In other words, of sexual desire for someone to whom you are not married, it is sin. It's sin. And it's prohibited. And let me be really, really clear. For some of you who are single, or some of you who are, uh, who are uh, young people and adolescents, let me be really, really clear. Biblically speaking, there are three kinds of relationships that we have as people before the face of God. We live our lives before God's presence, and we have these three kinds of relationships. We have family relationships. Some of us have marriage relationships. And then all of us have neighbor relationships. Biblically, those are the only categories. Everybody who's not family or your spouse is your neighbor. Everybody to whom you are married is your spouse. And then everybody that's your blood relative is your family. So, let me just walk you through this. Biblically speaking, you're in neighbor relationships, there is no sexual contact of any kind. Period. To do that is to violate one or another of God's commands. And certainly this one. Also, within family relationships... There is no sexual contact. None. To do that is to violate all of God's prohibitions against incest. Now, in some families, they're very affectionate, uh, and there are forms of contact that in certain contexts could be sexual but are fine within families. Like, as an example, in our house, we hold hands. I hold hands with all my kids, boys, the girls doesn't matter we hug we kiss and that's fine okay and it's not a sexual thing it's just family it's family and that's okay all right now then there's a third type of 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 relationships and that is marriage relationships now within a a marriage just to be clear is one man one woman who get married by making vows before god forming a covenant relationship and then they become physically one flesh. And then sexual relationships uh, are, within that context, sexual relations are not prohibited but commanded. Because it's 
one man, one woman in covenant for a lifetime, that then uh, sexual expression becomes a commanded part of that as, as a seal and as a blessing on their marriage covenant. And it's intended to be a lifelong blessing and a regular blessing. But outside of that, there is no sexual contact that you're to have with other people. So, let me be really, really clear. There is no fourth category. A lot of times we want to create one as Christians. And we say things like this. Well, you know, we're dating and the Bible doesn't really address dating. Yes, it does. There are three categories of relationship. Spouse, family, and neighbor. If they are not your spouse and they are not your family, they are your neighbor. And guess what? No sexual contact. Now, does that mean you can't hold hands? Does that mean you can't kiss? Does that mean you can't hug? Well, I kiss and hug my aunts and my, and, and my kids and so forth, and it's not a sexual thing. And if you can do that with a person you're dating, fine. <laughs> okay. But I never could make that happen. <laughs> All right? Um, and, and the biblical standard is very, very clear. And it only gets fuzzy when we want to f- make it fuzzy because we have lustful desires we want to satisfy. Okay? This is hard. This is hard teaching. And it cuts completely cross-grain with everything in our culture I know. But you know what? I would rather be a freak and be holy than float downstream with everybody else and be judged by God and disciplined as his child because I was unholy and not willing to hold to God's standard when he made it abundantly clear. Why does God prohibit all these things? Let me be clear on that too. It isn't because God is the cosmic killjoy. A lot of times people think of it like that, that God has his list of rules and he has us some things he says don't do and some things he says to do, and he just really wants to suck all of the fun out of life. And that's why all this stuff is in here because God is up there to go, oh, those people look like they're enjoying themselves. No more of that. Okay, no, that isn't it. That has nothing whatsoever to do with it. What it does have to do with is this, is that God has a plan for our blessing and our good and his glory. And his plan is this, a lifelong, enjoyable, fun, regular consummation of a one man, one woman, one flesh for a lifetime relationship. And if you obey what God says, you have the opportunity to richly enjoy the blessing that God intends for you to have. I have been married 18 years. I am still experiencing the blessing of obeying God on this. Many of you can also testify to the same thing, that you have been married far longer than me. And you go, yes, God is still blessing my life in this area because I obeyed God. 
And if you disobey God here, it's not that you can't repent and not that God won't forgive and not that he won't heal to some degree of the wounds that you inflict on yourself. But wouldn't it be better if you had a choice to not go through the trauma in the first place? Wouldn't it be so much better to experience God's blessing and have that be all you experience rather than carrying, as many of us do, shrapnel and scars from having messed this up? And therefore, to teach and encourage and hold one another to God's standard. And by the way, nothing, all these other sins are really damaging. But this one cuts you as deeply as you can and still be alive. Paul says, every other sin a man commits is outside his body, but this one is against his own body. And if you give in to lust, what happens is it destroys you. If you make this thing into a god, it will eat your life. Trust me, I know the truth of that. I really do. It will eat your life. Uh, If you want some encouragement, if you're struggling here, I want to recommend some books to you outside your Bible. I would always encourage you to read your Bible, always. In fact, if you're not going to read anything else, read your Bible. But there are also some other resources that are helpful. I want to give you some here, some titles that you can look at. First is a book called Redemption, Freed by Jesus from the Idols We Worship and the Wounds We Carry. Now, this is a tough book. Walks you through the story of Exodus and talks about how to be free from sin. And many of the chapters deal with sexual sin in particular. And so if you've messed this up, get this book. It will be an encouragement to you. And it will help you to be healed. Um, by pointing you back to Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, Another one you might check out is Every Man's Battle, if you're a man, or Every Woman's Battle. Uh, There's a series of books there, one for young men, one for young women, one for adult men, one for adult women. Um, If you're married and you're struggling to enjoy this gift that God gave you as a married couple, uh, I recommend a book called Sheet Music by Kevin Lehman for married couples to read together. Uh, or if you're a lady and you have some, a lot of questions and you have some issues here, I recommend a book called Intimate Issues uh, by uh, Linda Dillo and Lorraine Pintus. Uh, it's a great book for married women or for a, a woman who is about to be married and has a lot of questions. Um, purity is worth fighting for. Amen? It is worth fighting for. And God's gift is good, and it is meant to be enjoyed in his God-ordained context. And outside that context, it is destructive. I heard Tony Evans say one time that, that, that sexuality is like a fire. It's awesome in a fireplace. It's fantastic. You can cook marshmallows. Heck, you can cook dinner if you've got a fire in the fireplace, right? It's pretty to look at. It gives off heat. It, you can warm your house with a fire. 
It's wonderful. But the same, take the same fire and transplant it to your coffee table, and you have a problem. And you have a problem that will grow to epic proportions in a matter of seconds. A house fire doubles in size every 60 seconds. You know that? It takes the firemen 10 minutes. It's a, it's, they're going to be uh, stomping out the ashes on your place. And sexuality works exactly the same way. In the right context, it's, it's a blessing. It gives off warmth at, to, your, to your house. It, it enables you to have tremendous blessings. But at the same time, it will burn down the house if you take it out of the right context. Let's move on. Next command has to do with generosity, being generous. You shall not steal, it says. This command includes every kind of putting your hands on anything that does not belong to you. Whether that is someone else's car or house or livestock or any other property or money or anything bought with money that isn't yours. So that includes office supplies from your job. It includes answers on a test. It includes getting someone else to do your work for you and then taking credit for their work. It includes cheating on your taxes. It includes refusing to work while at the same time demanding that other people take care of you. As Paul said, if a man will not work, do not let him eat. Because a man who refuses to work is a thief. It includes borrowing money and refusing to pay it back. It includes all of the myriad ways that if you are a government official, you can appropriate someone else's property for the benefit of yourself and your cronies. That's theft. It includes being lazy at your job and giving him or her less than full effort. Because after all, my boss is a bum and I don't really want to work that hard. That's stealing. He is paying you to work. And in contrast to all these things, God expects his people to be generous. Not to take from other people, but to give to other people. To give, sacrificially in fact, for other people's benefit and the meeting of their needs... Because you are not the supreme center of the universe. And you need to recognize that. That God is the center of the universe. And you honor him by giving to take care of other people. Apostle Paul says this way. Let the thief steal no longer. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. That he may have something to share with everyone else who is in need. Right? I have violated this one. I've got to be honest. I have violated this. I bet you have too. I've been a slacker sometimes. I've fudged a few things. I even cheated on a test more than once. True story. Didn't get caught. But guess what? God saw. And it's stealing. It's stealing. Let's move on. Be truthful. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this specifically refers to the context of a legal trial, a legal proceeding, and the giving of false testimony about someone else. And that is probably one of the worst and most destructive forms of lying. Why? Because your lying could very well result in someone else's life being destroyed. 
If you don't tell the truth, this person might go to prison or this person might be executed or this person might be fined in a way that just is absolutely crippling. And so he says that's the most destructive form of lying, but it, can, it also applies, as we've said, this is a broader category than just the one that's listed, to all the myriad ways of being untruthful that we are prone to. So it includes big lies. It includes white lies. It includes socially acceptable lies. Now, by the way, you need to be careful what you ask people, right? Do not ask somebody a question you don't want a truthful answer to, okay? In other words, how do I look? You really want to know? you don't want to know, you better not ask, because you're suborning perjury right there, right? At least in some cases. You need to be careful, but tell the truth, okay? It includes lying to get yourself out of trouble. It includes perjury in a court case. It includes refusing to speak up about evil that you have witnessed, It includes exaggeration to make yourself appear more heroic than you actually are. It includes shading the truth to present yourself in a more favorable way, uh, leaving stuff out, in other words, that might not make you look so great. Or it includes exaggerating to make your circumstances seem worse than they really are in order to gain sympathy and support. It includes withholding the truth because telling all the facts wouldn't really benefit your cause, and on and on and on. And the thing is that we need to remember is that God is truth. And when he speaks, his words are true, and he does not ever, ever, ever lie. And if we are going to be like him, if we are going to love our neighbors, our, our friends, our spouses our families, we've got to love them enough to be truthful with them all the time. All the time. Two more. Be content. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this sin, when you look at it, you know, you see this long list of really horrible things, and you go, oh, coveting, that doesn't seem so bad. Uh, and because it's possible to be covetous and have nobody know, or at least not right away. But the reality of this is that a greedy heart really does have a relation, an impact on your relationship with God and with other people. Paul says greed is idolatry. But it also really does affect your relationship with other people because coveting and greed is a symptom of the fact that you see people as things to be used for your benefit and their possessions as things to which you are entitled. And it is a heart problem that goes all the way back to the garden. You remember God, uh, the serpent came in and told Eve... You know, well, you won't really die. 
you won't really die. The thing is, is that God knows that if you eat the fruit, you're going to be like him. And he's, in other words, he's holding out on you, Eve. He's got this good thing over here that he's just dangling over the top of you because he doesn't want you to have it, and it's something good. It's a lie. And yet we believe it when we covet. And we look at things and we say, I want it and I deserve it, and God says I can't have it, and so... That is a problem for God because I am the world's most important person. Coveting seems harmless on the surface, but if you leave it grow, you become a person who uses people rather than loves people. And your walk with God, to the extent that it is really real, what coveting does is it reduces your relationship with God to whatever benefits he bestows on you. And when the bennies stop coming in the way that you want, you stop wanting to be in relationship with God. I've known all kinds of people like this. In fact, I was talking on the phone last week with a friend of mine, and this person was telling me about some horrible circumstance that they had undergone, and it was horrible. And they said, well, I haven't been back to church since well why well because God and I aren't on speaking terms he didn't give me what I wanted he didn't give me what I wanted okay and what you've done in that circumstance is you've dethroned God from your life and you've replaced him with me and you said I am the most important person And Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. Paul says it this way. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And against all this, God calls us to contentment and says, I will give you everything you need. And my grace is sufficient for you. And trust me, be content. And he calls us to satisfaction in our relationship with him. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and he's, his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. He has provided all kinds of things for us to richly enjoy. And if we were to never receive another blessing from God than what we have already gotten, we have sufficient reason to praise him for all eternity just on the basis of what we have already received from God. Here's a true statement. This is my wife, so I'll give her credit. Comparison kills contentment. And it stirs envy. That's a fact. God calls us to recognize how much he has really blessed us with. Let's read the last few verses here. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people see God demonstrating his power before them, and they see the thunder, and they see the lightning, and the 
the smoke and the fire and they hear the trumpet and the voice of God and they are terrified and they shrink back. Moses doesn't have to police the boundary anymore because they are scared motherless. And the boundary becomes self-enforcing. No one wants to get too close because it is a fearful thing to be a sinner in the presence of a holy God. But God's purpose, Moses says, is not to scare them. And as I've gone through all this, my purpose is not to discourage you. It isn't to tell you all of the ways in which you may or may not be being wicked. This is not the point. The point is is that you would see God in the beauty of his holiness and draw near to him as Moses did. And in drawing near to him, learn to really love your neighbor as he calls us to. Because all these things, as we obey them, are aspects of what it means to love other people and to see them as image bearers of the living God and not as objects to be used for our gratification. People are not things to be used. They are beings to be loved and treated with honor because they are image bearers of the living God. And Jesus said it this way, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And these commandments are given to us that we might love God well and then love other people well as a result. That we would understand what it really means to do both of those things. Because we reveal our relationship, our relationship with God really is as we interact one to another and where I have hatred where verbal abuse towards somebody comes out of my mouth I realize I need to grow closer to God and I need to repent of my sin where I am given over to lust I need to repent that I might see God in his holiness and might stop using people as the object of my satisfaction Where I'm being untruthful, I need to see God as truth and draw near to Him and repent of lying and speak the truth to people that I might bless them rather than use them simply to inflate my own self sense of self and protect myself from whatever bad opinion or bad consequence I think might be coming my way that I'm trying to escape from by being untruthful. All these things play into your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And God calls us to love other people and love Him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, Your Word speaks to us in some ways too emphatically for our ears. And it is more than we can take in, more than we can handle. And yet, Father, we know that You call us to holiness. But not holiness that we crank up on our own not holiness that we have decided, well, I'm going to do the best I can on my own steam, but, Father, holiness that is empowered by your Holy Spirit who makes us holy. Father, help us draw near to you that the things of earth, the things of sin, might fall away and that we might truly love you and love others well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.